Welcome to the Mere and Powerful Podcast, where we believe in going far by going together. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to the Powerful Podcast. I'm the co-host, Rebecca Pape. And I'm the other co-host, Brian Pape. Hello, Brian. Hello. It's good to see you. It's good to... Wait a second. It's been four months of seeing you. Yeah, we haven't not <laughs> not seen each other in months. It's been great. No, in all seriousness, it's been great. We've had a lot of great moments together. We have. I do miss traveling, but it has been good to be home for this long. Yeah, totally. Tell us what's happening today on the podcast. Oh, so many great things on the podcast. We uh, have just launched six colors at Mir, and they are gorgeous. And each color is tied to one of our impact stories, and we're telling stories about uh, each color. And so today's particular color is... Basil, uh, which is tied to the Skagit Valley, which is just north of Seattle. Uh, and we sat down with one of our great partners, Westland Distillery, uh, to more chat more about their work in the valley. We did. So the color Basil really celebrates the groundedness of the Pacific Northwest and um, just sort of touches on that connection that we all feel um, to the land that that gives so much to us. And um, so we, we discuss today sort of what it looks like to um, return that favor to the land in ways in ways that make sense. Yeah, so we sat down with Chris uh, Riesbeck, who is the commercial director at Westland Distillery, uh, who is, Westland is one of our custom beer partners. Uh, and we sat down on IG Live uh, a couple of months ago now, and, and Chris and I just uh, hit it off. We had a great time making Stateside Manhattans, which is a fantastic uh, cocktail that's super easy to make. If you're interested in, in that, I believe it is on the website, the IG uh, as well. Uh, but we had an amazing conversation, wide ranging. We talked about COVID times. We talked about brands uh, dealing with the struggles of racism and conversations there. But, we, you know, I just really loved Chris's energy. Uh, and he touched. He, he was such a knowledgeable. He is person. such a cool guy. Yeah. And just full ponies, like full ponies. I believe glass, he said seven eighths full. I think, yeah, glass seven eighths full, maybe even Can he like be nine eight out of eight. Full? Can he be like nine eighths full? Like I don't he's know. overflowing with fullness. Overflowing. Yeah. yeah, it's possible. He said so many awesome things that really resonated with me. Um, he talked about Westland Distillery doing things the hard way for the sake of authenticity. And if you try to cheapen any aspect of business the reality is that somebody in the chain suffers. Um, and I had, I had never really put words around it in the way that he did. And, um, I just thought that was pretty profound. Um, he also talks about being a champion to your locality, um, committing to putting words to action, which, you know, we've all heard, but, um, is just so critical, especially now. Um, what else did we talk about? Talked about consuming better. You know, we're all, we are all, we are all consuming, um, in the sense that we are consumers and the idea is that we can consume better and we can look for thoughtfully made, uh, things, whether it's food or products, um, but that we have a responsibility, uh, to the world and to our communities to, to consume better as, as, as opposed to just kind of mindlessly buying things for no point. Yeah. And it was just awesome to hear how differently Westland Distillery is pursuing their, passion in their industry and really there's this cry for getting back toward micro agriculture as opposed to monocrops and yeah um, I certainly learned about that I know broad strokes about that stuff but he was very very knowledgeable about all of that Um, and they have some incredible products coming out this fall they do yeah new whiskey coming out this fall that he talks with us about on the on the podcast and we won't tell you the name but he told us after the episode so you'll have to stay tuned because 
it's coming out this fall. It sounds amazing. You're definitely in for a treat today. Thanks for listening. Uh, you may want to have some whiskey nearby because, you know, you just should probably enjoy a cocktail while you listen. Yes. If, as long as you're over 21, of course. Um, all <laughs> the things. Please listen responsibly to this episode. Uh, without further ado, Chris Riesbeck from Westland Distillery. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Brian. Hey, Becca. How are you? Hi, we're great. Thanks for being with us today. I'm super excited to be on. Really appreciate you guys having me. I was I was looking forward to uh, part due of our uh, Instagram <laughs> live experience. Yeah, you guys had such chemistry. I had to jump into the conversation. I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to join this. One. I want to get to know Chris too. I feel like now that I've I've thoroughly stalked Brian's Instagram life, I am convinced that him and I are going to be like close friends pretty soon. Oh, totally. The fact that you know a man that's a bird hunter likes to hike, likes coffee, likes whiskey. It's like, man, this guy, we need to be, we need to be hanging out more often. <laughs> totally. Definitely. Yeah. Post COVID we are hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At some point we are going to actually see each other. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, it's, it's interesting because as we've been doing more virtual podcasts and even IG lives, you know, it's, um, we, you know, Henry uh, who helps produce this gets, you know, does a pretty good job of understanding, you know, people's chemistry just by, you know, doing research and whatnot. And they, they've all been really great, but what was, what was amazing about when we did the IG live with you is there was, like you said, there was that instant chemistry. Um, and those, those things you can't really plan for. You can like on paper look, you know, like it will be a good conversation or it's a yeah. custom mirror partner or whatever. But, um, yeah, that was, that was a fun conversation. And man, we, we, you were going off about like, uh, regenerative ag and like the hearts were going flying up, you know, everybody was super, super engaged on that, on that, uh, uh, IG live. So I'm excited to dive into it on the podcast about all the things that Westland's doing, what you're up to, uh, how you're adjusting to the, to the COVID times with, with spirits and whatnot. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for taking time to hang out with us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we are, uh, people are like, what, what's the update on the background? If you're watching, uh, this video, we are now, uh, in part of our flagship store. So we've moved our office, uh, across the street, part of our office is now in our store. So we've kind of divided our, our store up into the cafe side of the business, which is takeaway right now. And the other half is kind of a touchdown spot for HQ where teams can come in, socially distant, um, engage, and then go back. But we're still working from home. Um, but I'm curious, are you all working from home? You're clear, your home is beautiful. I love all the books in the background. It's a fantastic <laughs> yeah. You have a backdrop. great setup. <laughs> this, is, this is every book that I actually own. That's not a textbook at this point. So this is all the fun <laughs> stuff. All of the textbooks are on the other shelf that's in the other the other room. But uh, yeah, we are all, we're all working from home. The distillery's been semi-open, I guess it's probably the, the best way to say it. So obviously at the beginning of the, the sort of the COVID crisis, we quickly transitioned into making hand sanitizer. I've actually got... A little bottle of it here. Oh, rad! Yeah, a little bit of hand rub. Yeah, so we great. started making that eighty percent uh, alcohol solution, which was great, and it was, it kept us really busy. We obviously had to have separate teams in the distillery, so the production team would be in making it, and then we'd bring in a separate team and we'd do bottlings. We'd get it labeled up and get it ready for hospital pickups, and we're really proud of our team. You know, we donated the entirety of the production to local area clinics and hospitals. You know, people that were really in need and ensuring that they were able to get access to it, and only literally in the last. It's probably now two weeks or a week. Uh, we've transitioned back into being a whiskey distillery, <laughs> which is probably what we're a little more well known for than being a hand sanitizer <laughs> facility. Yeah. Well, those were those were great pivots. We see we had a we had a buddy from um, uh, gosh, I'm totally blanking on the on the it wasn't mischief in Fremont. Well, a lot of distilleries were doing hand sanitizer, which was yeah. which is amazing. Um, you know, some people were able to donate it. Some people were probably able to keep their business afloat. Uh, by selling hand sanitizer and there was definitely a drought in the marketplace you could see it no stores had hand sanitizer it was just gone mm -hmm. 
Uh, it just to me, it shows just how great this community of brewing and distilling is in the Pacific Northwest. And and I shouldn't just say the Northwest. It's great around the United States and really around the world. But specifically in the Pacific Northwest, like to give you an example, Great Western Malting, an enormous, you know, big, big malter out or a maltster out of uh, Vancouver, Washington, down near the Oregon border, like donated us a bunch of pale malt so we could make hand sanitizer with it mm. with oh, no sort of specification with what we would do with it it was really cool and for us to be able to sort of pay that forward and to donate our entire production out into the market like that's you know that's taking care of your neighborhood it's taking care of your you know the people that are out there and, and supporting you in the community yeah definitely the um the, yeah just I, I have goosebumps right now thinking about how that great uh you know kind of ingenuity of of entrepreneurs to pivot and help out the community and uh just I love it. I love it. And that. what was your team's response to that pivot? Uh, it was quick. I mean, everyone almost immediately signed on. So obviously we wanted to be sensitive to, frankly, the the any health concerns our individual team members were going to have. So we, we made it clear, listen, this is a voluntary basis. People that want to come in and work production, you know, this is what we'd like to do. People that want to come in and do bottling, labeling, helping organize with the hospitals. All of that was voluntary. And to a team member, everyone wanted to get involved. Mm. You know, people are excited and li- listen, this is, this is their home. This is, you know, the, the, the community that they're engaged with. You want to take care of those kind of things. I, I, there's an argument to be made. I think that COVID brought out this really sort of fantastic community spirit and it, it forced people to recognize like, Hey, we need to take care of each other. I mean, seeing people checking in on their elderly neighbors, seeing people doing hand sanitizer, recognizing that people were mindful of, you know, keeping family members and, and members of the elderly community safe. Like that's, that's mm. really powerful stuff. I, we don't often get enough opportunities to get excited about how good we can all be to each other. Mm. And I think that was one of those times where I was like, oh man, this is, I'm so proud to work at a place where we, we saw a challenge and instead of running away from it, we ran right towards it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I think the pandemic has been really clarifying for a lot of people. It's, it's um, forced us to really bump up against our purpose and mm. what and what is really important and um you know the stuff that's not it just kind of falls away um so that's that's really cool to hear yeah the yeah. the uh the philosopher that i'm still blanking on who says that mo- many of us go through life uh half asleep and i think that's so true pre covid that we were you know so preoccupied with our busyness and our schedules and our you know all the things and trying to do so much and then it you know really what's important uh you know, becomes very, very clear when you can only, you know, be within your house or, or be quarantined with your family and, and really kind of highlights what, what or you, you have time to also figure out what's important, you know, and yeah. get some more sleep. And I don't know, the whole thing has been, um, I'm not grateful for COVID. I'm grateful for the opportunity and choosing to be optimistic about the outcomes that can happen from it, the new habits that can be formed. Um, which and is, and habits mindset. that can fall away too. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, the, I feel like the workout thing has been like a, a total roller coaster where it's like working out for a couple of weeks and then you just fall off the bandwagon and it's like sitting around for a week. <laughs> but there so are I, ways, I, yeah, there are ways we can come out of this stronger and better. I think if maybe not physically stronger. But. <laughs> yeah, we we can't we can't choose the circumstances that we're in to a certain degree, but we can certainly choose the way that we we mm. sort of deal with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it was Victor Frankl who said there's a, there's a, um, there's that space between stimulus and response. And in that space is how we choose to react. And I think that's true now more than ever, you know, given with black lives matter movement, um, you know, getting, gaining momentum and, and ground and then COVID as well of, you know, how are we going to choose to react? 
Um, and we last, last week we had a, uh, all company meeting and I kind of observed around culture, Instagram, Facebook, just kind of general talk was 2020 is a throwaway year. It's the worst year. It's a dumpster fire. And, and it's right to feel that way. You know, jobs being stripped away. There's a lot of things that have not gone well, but I was trying to encourage our team to frame it up in a way, uh, the year as like, this is the year of growth. It's the year of opportunity. It's the year of, of leaning into places where it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to potentially talk about racism and bring up those conversations with family members and business partners, um, and then deal with pandemic and working from home. There's all these things that are very, very uncomfortable, but when you're in that uncomfortable moment on that edge, that's where you see growth, I think. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that one bit. I, I, you know, at the end of the day, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, dealing with the, the things that need to be dealt with, that, that's how you really grow. That's how a community grows. That's how we grow as individuals. It's how we grow as a business. And, you know, it's, it's acknowledging, listen, we're not doing everything perfectly. Here's the ways that we can get better. And frankly, committing to the work. Mm. I, you know, I, I feel like we're in this really interesting time period now where the general public and consumers of anything are going to be able to watch the companies that they respect put words to action. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure that that always happens. I, you know, I, as a, as a, I don't know if I get to be a meerkat, but certainly a mere fan. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. I am a, You're I definitely am, a meerkat. I, yeah. Okay, good. Thank God. Yeah, I was hoping yeah. so. Anybody that owns a meerkat, you can join the meerkat movement. <laughs> but I'll tell you, like I, I, you know, I watched the response that you guys have had as a business and I'm, I'm just in awe of the level of thoughtfulness. You know, we, Westland is a place where thoughtfulness is very much sort of near and dear to us as like a, a central philosophy. And to see, to see that, in other companies and people that I respect and to see it in companies that I want to engage with, like that to me is so important. It's, it's just, it's so central to building a strong community, to getting people excited about, you know, these are the kind of people I want to engage with. These are the people that I want to communicate with. And these are the type of people that I want in my community. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate that. Our team definitely takes a lot of time to think about um, how we want to respond and, and not to be, you know, uh, persuaded or blown around by the winds of, of, you know, topic du jour, but, but, but really being intentional. And what's, I think what's great. And I encouraged our team last week is that the, the, the great news in all of this, um, all these crises or movements is that we as a company are able to lean into our actual mission statement, which is to empower people for a better future. And so we're not trying to scramble to like redo our mission statement to make it more meaningful or relevant in our marketing campaigns for whatever is happening in our time. It's us looking at what is our cause, why are we here, and then leaning into that and then responding out of that, which, you know, in a weird way, gives us a leg up on somebody who maybe doesn't have as far, you know, in the drinkware space, have a um, has as meaningful as a mission per se on the social justice side. So. Yeah. Um, if your mission yeah. is just to be a successful company at the expense of the people around you, then you are literally yeah. <laughs> practicing the opposite of thoughtfulness. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, how, how, have, how has Westland been able to respond, you know, with COVID um, and then Black Lives Matter movement? How, how have you all kind of, you know, I guess there's, there's two very big topics there, but starting off with COVID, um, yeah. how, you know, you're obviously uh, a, a, a commercialization manager. You're in charge of selling whiskey uh but when you're quarantined at home how do you do that so it's interesting it's what we've seen as a general trend in the industry is that obviously consumption has shifted to the off-premise meaning that people are buying at retail they're bringing it home and consuming it and that no not terribly surprising as you can imagine right. you know a huge majority of the bars and restaurants around the world have been shut down now for you know realistically between 60 and 90 days and and a majority of them will be continued to have some interruptions to the level of service that they can provide so you know at, at 
our tier whiskey that's in that sort of premium price point, single malt in particular, tends to be an at-home consumption thing as well. Listen, mm-hmm. we've got a lot of great accounts in the bar and restaurant space around the world that we want to be supportive of. But at the, at the same time, we're trying to acknowledge how do we shorten the path to our consumer? How do we, mm-hmm. you know, how do we make sure that the people that are used to being able to meet us at whiskey dinners or meet us at whiskey festivals or go to our happy hours in, in bars and restaurants, how do we still get get to them and, and talk to them. And what we found is that social media has been incredibly powerful. So we set up with obviously our Westland Live series. We've done a lot of podcasts and Westland Live with other partners in the, the, the Pacific Northwest. And it's been great to see the reaction. You know, we've we started, I think, our first Westland Live. It's probably going back on seven or eight weeks ago now. And, you know, a, a, a good sized crowd, maybe 20, 30 people. And now they're, you know, 70, 80 people concurrently with a couple, you know, thousand views by the time that we get through it. So what we've tried to do is, is understand that we don't have a single consumer base at Westland, right? We're an American single malt. We make something that's a little bit different from what most people acknowledge as American whiskey, even though the Pacific Northwest is probably the best place, one of the best places in the world, and certainly the best place in the United States to make a single malt style whiskey. But, you know, we know that we've got some really fervent supporters, people that are super into the technical geeky kind of stuff. So we've gone out of our way to have, we, we had like a Thursday nerd day where we just did <laughs> crazy heady topics. We brought in people that we have a lot of respect for, whether it's people at Cooperages or Maltsters to really talk about some of the, the, the detailed science behind whiskey. But then on Friday, we had great people that wanted to talk about like the culture of the Northwest and how that impacts us. You know, one of my favorites is we, we had Nate Manny, who's our creative director on with Matt Hoffman, our co-founder. And, and you know, I've, I've known Nate for years now, but just to hear Nate talk about the inspiration for some of the design aspects for what we do at Wesson was just, it's really neat. And it's it's so cool to to see that we're acknowledging like, listen, my, my, I always think about my dad, right? My dad is the stereotypical whiskey consumer. You know, he's an older, he's an older male. He's you know, got a little bit of disposable income. He likes whiskey, but I don't think if I sat down with my dad genuinely was like, what type of whiskey do I sell that he could actually tell me right now? <laughs> like, I, I think that would be a real challenge for him. <laughs> so I know that the type of stuff that we need to talk to is the type of thing that gets that consumer excited, that just loves whiskey and wants to try exciting things and, you know, enjoy a good drink. And then I also know that there's those really, we call them malt heads in our industry, people that are like <laughs> super detailed, want to get into the nitty gritty. Like I, as a, as a person that's been in the whiskey industry now for a little over a decade, those malt heads are so central to our mission. Like there, I've worked at places where they've treated malt heads like, oh, you got to push them away. It's too much effort. They're going to just get d- too deep into the, the minutia of what we're doing. Westland's the exact opposite. We're like a magnet for malt heads. We want those people involved. It's Those people are evangelists. They're excited about what we do. They want to tell the story. Listen, we're creating an entirely new category of whiskey at Westland. It, this is American single malt just doesn't exist. It, it legally doesn't even exist now, according to our federal government. So we're really? at the beginning of this really exciting thing and, and bringing people into that and getting people to tell the story. I, I February of this year, I was on a boat in the middle of like, you know, between Finland and, um, and uh, uh, Sweden. And it was just like the craziest thing to see these people like so excited to talk about American single malt. They want to see something new because the whiskey industry, what we tend to take as real innovation are things that have typically been done for, you know, decades or longer. They've just been sort of dressed up with the the sort of the pizzazz of good marketing. But in reality, real innovation, real agricultural breakthroughs, they don't happen terribly often. And I, I'm super excited that we're at the real forefront of this. So what? So what? Talk, let's talk about some of that innovation. What? Uh, what is? What is Westland or what are single malt American whiskeys doing differently 
than what has maybe happened in the past with with whiskeys. Yeah, so it, it's it's probably a two prong approach to talk about. So I'll talk about American single malt, and then I'll talk a little bit about Westland. So American single malt is this recognition that the United States of America is one of the largest barley growing countries in the world. Yet, historically speaking, all of that has gone either to the brewing industry, which understandably yep. so, and a very small amount and very specifically six row barley. There's two types, two row and six row. Six row has gone to the bourbon industry because it's got a lot of enzyme activity, which they need for conversion of sugars to alcohol. You know, what we're trying to do with American single malt is to have this distinct voice. You know, we we don't want to be Scotch whiskey in America. We want to be American single malt. That's going to mean that we're going to do things slightly differently, that we're going to look at our region and and, and really try to celebrate the idea of provenance. Mm. You know, it's there's great whiskey being made literally on almost every country on the planet right now. The, the irony is, is that this is the only place in the world that when you say whiskey and you ask someone, what is whiskey, they probably aren't going to answer single malt. You know, in every other country, whether it's, you know, Western Europe and Asia, even parts of Africa now, when they make whiskey, it's a barley-based distillate. Whereas here in the United States, we just don't do that. We think of whiskey and we think of corn or, or rye right. spirits or bourbon or rye. And that's, that's understandable because that's sort of historically been the thing that we've done. But if you think about the agricultural systems that exist here from, you know, the eastern seaboard through the, the mid-Atlantic or through the Midwest and the, the south central parts of the U.S., and then you get out to the Pacific Northwest, we just don't have the same agricultural systems. We shouldn't be making bourbon in the Pacific Northwest. It would be it wouldn't be authentic. <laughs> it wouldn't have any sense of provenance. I mean, we are not only one of the biggest barley producing states in the country in Washington state, but we grow great barley. Like yeah. it's one thing to grow barley. It's another thing to grow really good barley. And Washington state has two incredibly unique uh, sort of micro climate, micro terroir areas. So you've got east of the Cascades, you know, the Palouse region, southeastern Washington, that high desert, you get that really dry, big fields. We're talking like 10,000 acre farms. Yeah. You go out to Western Washington, it's not historically known as a, a, barley growing region but some of the work that we're doing up in Skagit Valley mm. right now is is fascinating because we're having to focus on varietals that are acceptable to that region that are going to yield well and are going to be a financial investment for the farming community there and not just something that they're growing to plow back into the fields right right and and this from my understanding maybe this is on the IG conversation is that some of the stuff in Skagit Valley is actually helping with some of the crop rotation is that right it, that's exactly it. So a lot of these farmers in Skagit Valley, they don't practice monoculture farming. So monoculture farming is really common throughout most of the, the sort of Great Plains states and certainly into the eastern fringes of the Pacific Northwest. You know, it's this idea of you grow one thing and you use nitrogen replacement therapy or some level of fertilizer to ensure that you can grow the same thing year on year and that your yields won't really suffer. That is very detrimental to soil quality. It's the, the reason you have to keep using those things year on year is because you've literally depleted all of those intrinsic resources that the soil has and needs to grow something. So in, in Skagit Valley in particular, you're seeing a lot of what's called crop rotation, which is the idea that over a four or five year cycle, they're growing four or five different things. So that way the fields have a chance to rest. They're bringing different things in. So, you know, in Skagit Valley, not that long ago, and this always blows my mind, there were 80 crops grown in Skagit Valley, typically speaking, the 80th, the 80th most financially uh, sort of lucrative crop to grow was barley. Really? Because they were trying to grow the commodity barleys, the varietals that were growing out in Eastern Washington. And the problem was, is that land is so much more expensive in Western Washington yes. that the price per pound that they could get 
wouldn't even afford them the opportunity to do it. So they would literally thresh it right back into the field, knowing that, well, this is this is just a good natural fertilizer. But you'll see things like yeah, beans, alfalfa, um, you've got a small bit of potatoes, uh, you'll see wheat. There's a mixture of all these different things. But the, the big cash crop in Western Washington is tulips. Yeah, that's right. Like yeah, you, you go up there, I mean, yeah. tul- it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And then, so in those same fields with the tulips, are they rotating other crops through those tulip fields or is it just tulip, tulip, tulip every year? Uh, it depends. So it's for some of the farmers there, obviously tulips are going to be so financially lucrative that they'd have an incentive to keep those going. But yeah, you'll see a lot of them will rotate things through those fields or they'll, they'll sort of rotate tulips here and there just to ensure that they're not depleting the soil. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. Washington state for the, for people who have not been to Washington state, they are, it is very different. Western and Eastern Washington and central Washington are so different. It's so unique. It's, I, I absolutely love this state for that reason that you're, you know, on one side you have the sound and you have the coast and it's damp and foggy and, you know, salmon and all, all the things. And then you go to Eastern Washington and there's pheasant flying around and running around, which I guess aren't yep. native, but, um, <laughs> but then you have all these, uh, you know, beautiful crops and, and tons of wheat. And so is it, I guess on the barley, is it two? Are you doing two row or six row for? So we we predominantly use two row. So okay. there's a the the major difference between two row and six row. Six row tends to have a higher protein to starch ratio, whereas two row has a higher starch to protein ratio. Also, six row tends to have, and not surprising because of the enzymes, uh, or because of the protein ratio, but six row tends to have more enzymes to it. So it's it's good for conversion, but two row is what we want. We need that starch to create, you know, obviously alcohol. And where and is that coming from the Palouse? Is it, where's the two row coming from? Skagit as well? From, from all over from the all place. Over. So we okay. buy, so right now at, at the distillery, so in terms of our sort of classic recipe, which we call five malt. So the thing that really separates Westland from not just other American single malt distilleries, but really single malt distilleries around the world is that we work with something called five malt. So instead of just using pale malt to make our alcohol, which is commonly practiced really all over the world, where they'll, they'll tell you that, oh, barrels and time are what give our whiskey flavor. We openly reject that. Yes, those things give whiskey flavor, but the thing that really gives whiskey flavor is barley. If you mm. if you were to say to a brewer, well, you know, fermentation is the only thing that gives your beer flavor, they would throw you out. <laughs> and and as they should, because obviously the raw materials are what gives, you know, it gives it it's what gives beer flavor and it's certainly what gives whiskey flavor. So for us, we work with a two-row Washington State base pale malt. Then we use four specialty malts. So we have a, a Munich malt, which is lightly kilned. And then we work three roasted malts, just the way you would roast coffee, right? So we've got a Brees Extra Special, which comes out of Wisconsin. They're the only people in the world that can do this recipe. They own it. And then we get uh, brown malt and pale chocolate malt from Thomas Fawcett in the UK because it is literally some of the best brown malt and, and, and arguably the only pale chocolate malt you can source in the United States right now. But just fantastic quality stuff. Is that is that why brown ales typically come out of the UK? because of that yeah okay that's exactly it so things like that so i mean and this is the thing that i always laugh about because when we talk to people about whiskey and we're like oh we're using a five malt they're like oh well that why why would you do that like barley doesn't have any flavor but then you have that same conversation like well what's the difference between a lager and a stout and they're like oh well the barley use i'm like hey there you go (laughs) like you just answered your own question so for us it's it's so exciting to be able to listen there's all these great cultural things that exist in the Pacific Northwest. You know, we've got this unbelievable winemaking culture. We've got this great brewing culture. We've got a really strong agricultural tradition. And now there's this unbelievable tradition of innovation with some of the companies that you see growing tremendously over the last 25 years and, you know, in, in Seattle, especially, but throughout the Pacific Northwest. And all of those things impact our business. You know, Westland wasn't just this thing where it was like, you know, Matt sat down in 2010 was like, Westland is going to be a mirror of me. 
that, yep. that wasn't the point. West, Westland is a mirror to the Northwest. It's all these cultural influences coming together and things we're excited about. But when it comes to the way that we think about barley, there's no doubt about it that that the brewing tradition in the Northwest and the way that brewers have become so successful, it's built on this idea of like, we believe that barley has flavor and that we should celebrate barley and whiskey. I love that. The, uh, I do too. And 2010, great year to start a company. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we have worked with Viva Farms in the past. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're located in the Skagit Valley as well. They're sort of okay. a farm incubator. They help um, sort of break down barriers in terms of like entry to farming. Um, they have all kinds of cool programs, um, bilingual training, um, workshops, a sustainable ag practicum. And I was just refreshing sort of um to remember what they're up to and just they have a ton of information on their website and they stated that Skagit County is the 10th um for food crops based on value they're the 10th in um the country for production which is pretty oh, no cool. kidding that's amazing um so I don't know just kind of a reminder and you know we're we've been touching on this for a few minutes now but just how diverse Washington State is and what we're able to produce that's so unique from the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And, you know, we should, we should be proud of that. We should celebrate that. Absolutely. The land gives so much to us that, um, I don't know, it feels like we need to give something back to the land. I saw I mean, Becca, the thing And you that do that you through just, your crop. Yeah. The thing that you just said that I, that just immediately clicks and I hear it is, you know, it's this idea of a company out there that's trying to help break down the barriers to get into farming. This country, make no bones about it, we are in a real agricultural crisis situation right now. The average age of farmers on the whole is increasing. You know, we don't have young people going into farming right now because farming for some reason has become this thing where it was like, well, you're just going to grow whatever you can yield the most of and you're not going to be able to be really engaged with that. And, and that's a bad thing. You know, we celebrate the fact that we work with great families in Skagit Valley and we want them we want them to be excited when we release whiskey because we they'll know like, hey, like my barley, my field like was a part of that. But it starts around building economies in these little areas. It's, you know, the brewing industry, I think, has done this really well. And I think a part of it is touching on the distilling industry, this idea of like being a champion to your locality, mm. you know, being being successful where you are. Everyone and understandably so everyone wants to be a global success story. But a lot of times places don't take the time to really set a good base and to build up their community. And this is where Skagit Valley, I feel like there are going to be conversations about Skagit Valley for the next 20 years that are going to show like, this is exactly how you do it right. And you need the right people to do it. And, and in my mind, it starts with people like Dr. Steve Jones at the Bread Lab. And it starts yep. with the team over at Skagit Valley Malting and engaging farmers and showing them like, okay, we're going to change the way we do things. We're not going to work the same varietals. We're going to respect you as a farmer. We're going to respect your land. And we're going to grow things that are compelling, that are going to go into beer and whiskey. Who, I mean, who doesn't want to make you know, barley that goes into beer and whiskey. Like, exactly. let's be honest, like that's pretty amazing. <laughs> but, but even more so than that, it's like, we are going to show that this region can break aspects of the commodity cycle that are frankly mm. not working for a majority of farmers in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Taking away some of that, um, requires the, the requirement for subsidies in just an entirely different model and approach. And I think the bread lab, from what I've understood with the bread lab, they've done such remarkable research, um, Eastern West, Eastern and Western Washington. I think it's Washington state that heads up the bread lab. Is that? Yep. WSU. Yeah, yeah. WSU. Um, and they have a, amazing field offices all over um, Washington, but they've had some incredible breakthrough innovation. I don't know exactly what the innovation was on buckwheat, but I know with buckwheat, they 
they developed a varietal which is yielding more for the farmers um and one of our good friends used to work at the bread lab and they were um, developing kind of a buckwheat noodle and and even the the um, japanese restaurant across from where we live has a fantastic soba noodle uh the gal that started it um, she's japanese and she went back to japan to perfect her soba noodle technique for cooking and preparing it and then came back, opened her restaurant, but she's sourcing the buckwheat for her noodles within the state of Washington. And she was very intentional about that. Very intentional about it. I mean, that's why it. she's yeah. in cool. Seattle. And it's a small, the- small kamenagi, and I'm probably saying it wrong, but it's a really, really small restaurant. And they've just, they've focused on just being really, really great at their craft in this small, small space. And similarly, it's it's like Aslan Brewing up in Bellingham. You know, their their goal is to just be really great in the Northwest. And it, it's I, I I admire folks like that because it's so easy to get caught up in like you know. And and Mir is a global brand, and that was our intent from day one. But I, there's something so beautiful about these businesses that are starting to be like, you know, I'm just gonna be a really great roaster or a really great distillery or a really great brewery or farmer in this in this area. I don't need to go global. I don't need to be this massive company. Um, yeah. And I'm hoping that that movement is is continuing. I'm certainly seeing it a lot, but I'm also looking for it. So Well, and then there's room for passion too, right? Like the passion, like when we walk into this restaurant and the way they present their noodle, like the passion is palpable. Totally. Because they know they're they're breaking into something new and they're doing something different from what's been done in the past and um I don't know. You you have to feel the same way at Westland. Yeah, it's 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 genuine. It's it's about respecting your own philosophy and putting it into action. You know, it's again, it this touches back on the thing that I said earlier. It's great to say things, it's far more impactful to do them. Oh, and say, I think say this that, is say that so again. Say about. that again. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> Oh, I, I would, yeah, a thousand percent on that one. I think that's, and, and in this day and age, it's, it's so easy uh, to post on social media or to repost. And that, that is an important piece. You know, I think some of the movements, especially with Black Lives Matter right now, a lot of the groundswell movement is because it's, it has, the wildfire has spread through social media so quickly and garnered so much attention and you can share um, videos. And also everybody has a camera now. Everybody has a camera in their yeah. pocket and they can show the inequities and the discrimination that is actually happening now, right now, you know, and I, I think on one set, sense, I'm like really excited for technology because we can now expose things that have not been exposed before. You know, people are like, well, why did, why did it take George Floyd for this to happen? You know, it was, it was not during night. It was very clear. It was recorded. It was, you know, all these things kind of fell into place. Whereas 50 years ago, oh, did it really happen? You know, like there was this questioning of it. Now there's so much, there's so many cameras, literally there's billions of cameras around all of us, which is somewhat scary, but at the same time, it kind of keeps society hopefully accountable. Uh, but what you said was amazing is that it's the it's the posting, it's the talking, but then the action and the doing. And I'm so excited that hopefully this translates into action and doing um, for, for a lot of people. And to me, it's it's the, the big sort of benefit of, of the growth of technology and its role in society. And I, I, I'll be the first to admit, I have some hesitation about the idea of like, everything's a camera and everything's got a microphone. Yeah, totally. It's the, it's the ability to document and to make that accessible, you know, accessible information is tr- the true sort of model of being equal in an egalitarian society as much as possible. Accessibility to information and the ability to utilize it is consistent. And mm. we haven't been that way for a very long time. And that touches on social issues. It, talks, it touches on, you know, to make it a, a less important thing, but whiskey issues, it's all these things. It's, yeah, you yeah. know, the access to information is just such a critical part to being a better, a better community, a better person, you know, just more aware. Absolutely. And, I, you know, and 
I'll be the first to admit we all have, and, and me specifically in running the company, we have room for improvement to get better about equity and diversity and, and thoughts and how we market and how we include others that, that maybe don't have the privilege that we have had for so long. And I think um, where, when, when people say America has not gotten better, I, I push back and I think globally, not just America, but globally, there's been a democratization of so many things whether it's technology, access to information, starting a business. And, and while it's not fair and it's not a fair playing field for everybody, there's been a dramatic shift over the last 10, 20 years, really the 10 years, especially with social media and just the ability to access the internet and start a company. It is now more than ever easier to start a company than it has been before. You, you know, you don't need all these fancy things. You don't have to have an office and, and now we're all working from home, right? So it's, you don't have to have a fancy, you know, street address for your business card and business cards are kind of irrelevant now because i don't want to touch your business card or you know like <laughs> it's but you're, but you're you're touching on exactly that and it, it comes down to the the end of the day the ability to have this information the ability to utilize it is just different right i i would strongly push back on the idea that america is worse than it was 20 30 40 years ago i think the difference is is that our awareness of the inequality that exists is significantly greater because our accessibility to that information mm. the accessibility to evidence that yes. points to the, the opposite is is wasn't there and it is certainly now absolutely and even, even fundamental things about you know if, if we're gonna if if we're going to become more aware and read books on racism you know think about 20 years from now 20 years ago you had to go to the physical bookstore purchase it and if it was sold out you maybe don't go back to the bookstore or you have to go to the library wait on a list right and so now you can still do those things but it's that and you can buy it online and there's multiple places online to buy it from and you can read an essay about it and you can read the short notes and you could also buy it on your Kindle and on your iPhone. And, you know, so there's this, there's this, there's this ability for us to, to consume this information. I think really now the challenge is for us as individuals and, and collectively as communities and companies, are we going to choose to be uncomfortable and, and lean into watching those films that make us uncomfortable or reading the books that, you know, challenge our privilege and our, uh, you know, you know, whiteness, so to speak. And so I, I think overall, while it's we will never know the pain that the black community has felt i'm encouraged now more than ever that we have the opportunity to make changes like never before yeah it does feel like the sea change is here it feels like this wave is not going to subside and and thank for that you know obviously we it's it's frankly been long overdue and it's mm. good to see that we're making we're making promises now, but I would encourage everyone to be mindful of this two months from now when when we're not talking about this to be sure that we're still committed to the action that we we prescribed ourselves earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing I was also struck by in this is that, you know, there's I feel like there's a couple of movements of people that, you know, voting doesn't matter. Voting does matter. And our, our, we signed on to um, uh, basically getting out the vote. Patagonia started this campaign to allow people to take time during the work day to go out and vote. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's basically paid time off. So to, or I'm trying to think which way, whatever way, basically you have time during work to not work, to go vote with the idea that like, let's, let's make it, let's make voting accessible because not everybody like Washington state has a mail-in ballot, you know, and like, it's kind of weird for for me to look at some of these issues of people not being able to cast their vote because the voting machine doesn't work or the school is closed and there's this conversation that like mailing in your vote is is not going to be fair or equitable. And Washington State's been doing it for 10 years and we've had very fair elections. And so I'm hoping that the nation moves towards a way that we can all get more people out to vote and get the voices heard because it is important that people vote and they do the research and they don't just vote party lines because there was a black activist, a black, uh, a black man who pointed out that some of the cities that have the most police brutality are run by Democrats. And yeah. that makes a lot of Democrats very uncomfortable because they go, oh, we, we voted these people in. 
you know, and there, there has been no change, you know? So it's very, very important that people do the research, read up on the candidates and help get those candidates that they believe in that match their values into office. Because if we don't regardless vote, of political party, regardless no, of political we, we party, need to, we need to just get people to the polls. This is one of yeah. the, I, um, forgive me. And this is like a personal thing that I, I get really sort of worked up about, but it frustrates me when you hear people talk about voting as it's just a right. Voting isn't just a right. It is a responsibility yes. of an active and engaged society. You have a responsibility to your fellow man to go out and be informed on issues, to, to go out to vote. I'm not saying, listen, you can, you can decide if you want to support a candidate vocally and do all these things and go out and make people aware of who you're going to vote for. But you have a responsibility to your neighbor, to the person down the road, to the person on the other side of town. You have a responsibility to them to be engaged, to go out and vote. You earn that right. You should utilize it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, recently, uh, President Obama, um, it was either on Twitter or Instagram talked about how he encouraged people, especially young people, because I think there was a philosophy or idea with with um, the younger the younger generation of voters that just voting for the president was the most important thing because all the change happens at the top. Revolution and change happens from the bottom. It happens from collective individuals and it happens at a local level, at a community level, yep. city, state then maybe the national level and there's so much emphasis placed on on the president and, and certainly there you know there needs to be um an attention there of what is happening and accountability there but we have to vote locally you have to you have to put in the time because that's where actual i believe real change will happen they're all important yeah and every one of them is important and president it, obama it, said you can't you can't you can't rely on just one vote cast for the president to change everything it, it has to do with the individual it has to do with voting local elections state elections county elections, national elections, you know, and I, I think in the past people were like, oh, I'm going to vote for the president and then call it and then mail it in, you know, and it's like, no, 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 you got to follow the entire, entire ballot. Yeah, uh, totally. Maybe that just means that we, that we, the older generations have been putting too much emphasis on that one, you know, season of voting because yeah. that, I mean, they're getting it from somewhere. Yeah. It doesn't so, happen yeah. every four years. There's obviously, there's a, there's elections almost every year in, in communities. Yep. So getting out the vote, we're, so we, we are committed um, to getting our, our team. Um, it's a little bit easier in the state of Washington because people can mail in their ballot, but we still take time where people can like take time during the work day, fill out their ballot, read about the candidate, read about the information. So there's, there's little We've things. We've done that, that at Westland as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, we're really committed to the idea of like, listen, if you're an employee during that day, don't worry about it. Go out, get your vote in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's almost like I've seen this um, trend and I hope it continues that, you know, I think in the past and you see it a little bit on, on social media now where, you know, a company will take a stance and people will say, oh, go back to, you know, selling bottles or selling whiskey or whatever. And, you know, you shouldn't have a voice. And our lives are so intertwined with work. And I think in the, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, that's when there was this fine line of like, you went to work and then you had your family life and you had your political life and you didn't even talk about it. Really? You know, you, to, I, I remember my parents, they never talked about who they voted for. And it was offensive to ask them, Hey, who did you vote for? Like that was not a question you asked back in the day. And huh. now it's, I'm seeing this beautiful blend of, um, you know, it, there's a little bit of danger there of like working too much or, or not enough in the, in the work-life balance, so to speak. But this movement of companies going, we're so intertwined with people's lives that let's, let's let them have time during what is quote unquote, you know, paid time to do things that are important to vote, to understand how, uh, you know, racism is affecting Americans and black community. And, you know, so it's this, this, and that I hope businesses continue this trend of allowing for this kind of weaving of really important issues to become a part of companies and our stances, because ultimately I believe that the marketplace rewards those, 
behaviors that the consumers want. And so if consumer behavior changes, then business behavior will change as well. So anyway, I'm kind of going on a rant here, but you are going on a rant. <laughs> it's, it, it's all fair. Listen, we've, we've decided at Westland, you know, we've, we show solidarity with the movement, but we're very mindful of the fact that our employees are going to be the ones that determine what their personal action plan is here. Mm. You know, what are you going to do to improve your community? I know what I've done personally. You know, my wife and I had a really nice conversation maybe three, four days ago. And we said, listen, who are we as a people? What are we comfortable doing? And how do we see that we can play a role in actively making change? And we made a decision based on that. And I'm proud of that because I, I think that our company and any company really is a collection of individual people, right? I, I always fear when people get this idea of saying like, oh, our company is this thing. It's like your company is, it's this blending of all the people that work there that are impactful on the culture of it. And, and getting people excited about what they do is is important but at the same time it's also like allowing them to still be who they are mm. and to to be respectful of the individual and that's something that's so cool about i think companies in the northwest as a general rule there's this real sense of like hey you are not just the work that you do the work that you do is really important to who you are but it's also important for us to you to for you to be sort of the person that we brought you into this company to be and to to engage our culture with that because we think it's going to help make for a balanced culture and not just you don't want to just be one thing. You totally. want to be uh, representative of your whole body of work and all the people that are, you know, make up your employee pool. Absolutely. And I might take it one step further that your company is who your customers and consumers say you are. You know, oftentimes people say, yeah, what is your brand? Fair. And you know, our brand is this. Well, what do your customers say your brand is? Because ultimately your brand is what other people say about you, you know, at the, uh, at the end of the day. Uh, but, and again, that's what's great is you have this collective idea, but there's individuality uh, represented by your by your your team, but also the the consumers that that make up that kind of tribe or group, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Podcast listeners, the world is full of color, and we're telling stories about it. Stories of people and places we've encountered on our journey of empowering people for a better future as a brand. Today, head to mirror.com, order sixty dollars worth of product, and get ten dollars off. Use the discount code PODCOLOR at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-O-L-O-R, all one word. You do not want to miss out on these colors. There are six. There's at least one shade for you, one hue for you. So check that out, mirror.com, and we will return to our conversation with Chris. Um, can we switch gears a little bit? Yeah. Um, so I would define you, Chris, and you can disagree with me, but I think you're like a glasses seven eighths full kind of guy. <laughs> like you're an extreme I would, optimist. I am. I am an extreme optimist. I am excited by the potential of just about everything, which is, I mean, I can feel it through the screen. Like that's pretty cool. Uh, and you also are an outdoor enthusiast. So I'm curious to know, can you just like paint some broad brush strokes for us, um, going back to your childhood, maybe even early memories. I'm guessing you played outside a lot, or at some point you realized like the outdoors is this amazing place that, you know, that you can take advantage of. And, um, and then maybe take us even all the way up through, um, I, I have a note here that says you studied brewing and distilling sciences. So like, at what point did you realize, you know, that that was something that you wanted to pursue? And obviously it has carried you to, to where you are now, but 
Okay, just so there's, take a, us there's a lot there to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> I will, so I'll, I'll start off with, uh, I'm 36 years old now. I moved a lot as a kid. So my father had been, had worked for the same company for like 30 odd years and literally started as like a stock boy for the company that he worked for and worked his way up to being like the North American food service director. And so really successful. And it certainly had an impact on the way that I want to see my career path go as well. Like I, I'm jealous of the fact that my father got to work like a full lifetime for one company. To me, that's so cool to like grow and evolve with that. But because of his line of work, because we move so much, I'll be the first to admit, I did not have a ton of friends growing up. You know, when you're constantly the new kid in schools or you're potentially moving into the middle of like a summer and things like that, you learn really quickly that like the outdoors is a great place to just like keep yourself busy for many hours at a time. <laughs> yeah, it's like your so, companion. Yeah, my, my little brother and I, we grew up, we, we used to love fishing. I can remember like one of my favorite memories is of being of a kid, like, we had just moved to this house in Ohio. We hadn't even seen the house before we moved in. And like, you know, you're pretty nonplussed about the idea that like, oh, it's again, we're just going to have to unpack our stuff and not know anyone. And I remember like we walked into the backyard and it's it was Ohio, like central Ohio. So flat as a board, you could see to the horizon kind of thing. And there is a pond, like maybe a couple hundred yards behind us and just loaded with fish. And I, I don't think I've ever been so excited about anything in my life. I am a <laughs> lifelong fisherman. I do quite a bit of fly fishing now. I like to hunt. I love being outside. To me, I work what I would argue to be not necessarily an enormously stressful job, but a pretty high intensity job. I'm, I wake up from, you know, 6 a.m. till probably 9-ish p.m. I'm on in some capacity, whether it's, you know, engaging with our consumers, it's talking to the markets and we sell whiskey all over the world now or dealing with people here in the, the U.S. It's it's hard for me to find moments to turn off. I, I'm a high energy kind of guy, if that's not terribly clear. <laughs> you know, I, I went fishing with one of my coworkers, a guy by the name of Steve Hawley, who's a good buddy of mine now. And we were out in Idaho last year. And Steve knows me really from work. We have a bit of a personal relationship as well, but really from work. And we were like, hey, man, we're going to take a week. Let's go out and let's go fish in Idaho. And he was like, he was like, he came back. And I remember he told everyone that was willing to listen at Westland. He was like, Respect doesn't talk when he fishes. You couldn't imagine it, but like he's silent for hours on end. And it was, I, I realize now that like, I really don't like fly fishing with other people. Like mm. it's certainly next to me because I like the silence. I, I feel like I talk frankly more than I need to at times, but this was one of those experiences where like being out in the woods, being fishing, you know, being sort of aware of your surroundings is just, to me, it's, it's a critical part of living a balanced life. If, if all you're allowing is things to stimulate you in like the worst possible way where it's just overwhelming all the time, and you're not taking a moment to just sort of like unpack that stuff, you're, you're really not getting a full experience out of life. Mm -hmm. I, to me, it's just, I couldn't, I don't know if I'd want to live a life where I couldn't be in the woods, where I couldn't go fish, where I couldn't go hunt. And you know, those are things that like, they don't cost much money. Like, listen, you can make hunting, you can make fishing the most expensive hobby in the world if you want it to be, but you can also like tie a string to a stick. Like you can do those things. You can get out, you can just engage with nature. I mean, this morning my, in my backyard, we had like a black bear just like walk through the backyard and I'm just like sitting there. I'm like fascinated by it because it's, it just goes to show that like, Nature always finds a way. The, the world is constantly moving around us. It's whether or not we decide that we're going to sit still for five minutes and just sort of acknowledge that and be aware of it. But it's always there and it's always doing things. And I, I love that. I love the fact that regardless of what I'm doing, it doesn't care. 
like the, you know i i i'll probably be the first to admit that there are times where i i'm way too intercentric right i'm focusing on me focusing on what's the impact on me but when i'm out in the woods i'm focusing on how i am just not disturbing anything that i'm able to just see these things and experience them and to me that is that is the beauty of being a hunter it's the beauty of being an angler it's it's frankly the beauty of just the accessibility to the outdoors yeah it's been a few so years when since I, we've oh go ahead go ahead no no go on I was just going to say it's been a few years since we've backpacked but I've had thoughts on you know in really remote places where I'm like this is just here all the time and yeah. and I just get to witness a moment of it but it's it's here whether or not I track through it and I, I, it's just a it's a gift and it sounds like you're making yeah. intentional time to you know to you have to to do that you, you yeah. absolutely have to so I mean I remember when so what we we grew up by the time that I had gotten through high school, we were back on the East Coast. My dad had gotten transferred back out here. My family had. And and I finished high school here. I'd only been here for like two years. I, I didn't feel very settled in the Northeast, even though I was born in Connecticut. Um, and I wanted to get back out to the Midwest. So I went out to a small liberal arts school in Ohio uh, called College of Worcester. Shout out, go Scots. <laughs> and uh, I, I was I got there and I was like, I'm going to go into business. That's all I, I you know, I was like that classic example of a guy that was like, I'm just going to be a businessman. I had no idea what the hell that actually meant. So I get to school and then I, I take some classes and I'm like, oh, this is not this is not making me better. And I sat through it. It's funny because you were mentoring Viktor Frankl, but I sat through a single philosophy class, intro to philosophy, 100 level class, right? And I remember the professor, Hank Kruzman, is the best professor I ever had. And I immediately, like the afternoon after that first class, went and changed my major to philosophy and just loved it because I, I like asking questions. I like to talk things through. We taught, the program there was taught in the Socratic method. So there was never like a cut and dry answer to anything. And what I found was that the thing that I was the most interested was the the implication of like how bioethics and philosophy could intersect. So mm -hmm. I was one of the first people to go through that program with a, a sort of speciality on bioethics. And one of the keystone sort of aspects of the, the College of Worcester is that you do this big senior thesis. It's like a hundred page paper. It's a great way to kind of get yourself comfortable with the workload for what you're going to do for a master's eventually. And I remember I graduated from college and I was like, oh, this is amazing. I'm super excited. Moved back to Connecticut to be close to my family. And then I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll just go get a job at a hospital. And <laughs> let me tell you, Hospitals don't hire 20 year olds to be like making end of life situations, like things that have real ethical implications. And now that I'm 36, I am so glad that they don't do that. <laughs> so, I, so I said to myself, I was like, well, how am I going to get into that field? So I was like, all right, well, I'll go, I'll try to get a job for a pharmaceutical company. Like that'd be a good place. I'll get some business experience. I'll get to stay engaged with the sciences. And I would get through these interviews and I'd get to like the third or fourth round of interviews, which is typically towards the end for these. And I realized pretty quickly, like my understanding of science was nowhere near where it needed to be to, to do a job in that sort of field. So I decided, I was like, well, I'll, I'll grab, grab a job. I was working at a bar, running a wine program and realized I had a real aptitude for it. I'd ran a bar in college, which was like the greatest thing ever. And <laughs> you know, graduate, you come home, you're doing that. My mom goes, ah, what are you, you going to do with just working at a bar all the time? Well, mom, look at me now. Yeah. You know, I've been able to turn it into a real thing, but I, I pretty quickly got involved with some distributors here in Connecticut. And then I was able to transition that into being the national brand ambassador for a large uh, distillery out of Scotland called Gordon and McPhail, and they own the Ben Romick distillery. And it was a you know hundred year old family firm. I was like one of the few non blood employees, which was kind of cool and a real way to like learn the business. And a few years after that, 
just realized that I had kind of hit this spot with them that I was super happy with what I had done, but I, I wanted to see more. I wanted to be, I really wanted to be the part of something early in. I didn't want to just be sort of continuing the 3%, 5% kind of growth thing. I wanted to, I wanted to make real impact. And I had tasted Westland a few years prior to, to coming and working for them. So I, I started with Westland uh, in early 2016. And I just fell in love with the product. I thought the story that Matt had and the idea of provenance and celebrating the outdoors, like it, it just resonated with me almost immediately. So I came on board with Westland as their Eastern US sales manager. And then over the last couple of years, I've gotten promoted to commercial director. And I, I oversee sort of all of our commercial functionality around the world, which is pretty exciting because where we are in the US versus where we are in say the Swedish marketplace or Norway or Singapore or Japan, it's all at different levels, right? The the education level of the consumer in those places is different. And that led me to this discovery that was like, I was a good salesman. I still think I'm a good salesman, but I really didn't have enough of a knowledge base of the science. Like, I listen, I've been a home brewer for years. I understand the basics, but I didn't really, I was one of those guys that could talk but if you really put me on the spot and you were like, get into this specific thing, it was like skin deep. Mm. And I said to myself, like, I don't have a lot of respect for salespeople that are like that. So I'm not going to be that kind of salesperson. I'm going to, I'm going to be different. And, you know, I thank Matt for this every day, but Matt encouraged me. So Matt Hoffman, our co-founder, master distiller started Wesson back in 2010. He had gone through the Harriet Watt program as they were starting the distillery, right? Not classically trained, literally like taught himself. And I had kind of made like an offhanded remark once where I was like, you know, I'd really like to do this, but I don't have a science background and their, their criteria to accept people into Harriet Watt for it. Cause it's out of Edinburgh. It's a distance learning program. If you're obviously not in the UK is pretty tough to get into. And Matt had been like, I'll write you the letter of recommendation, but you have to do all the other work. And we did. And I put in and I, I like got accepted pretty quickly, which was super exciting because I, it was one of those things where I was like, I probably didn't know how much work I was getting myself into, I, you know, just to give you a sense of it. I've been doing it now for almost four years, uh, with my work schedule and my travel schedule. I can really only take a class a semester. There are people that like go and live there for a year and a half and knock it out, but it just wasn't, it wasn't something that I don't think my wife would be keen on me, like moving away for a year and a half. <laughs> so, you know, I got, I got through it and I'm, I'm just finishing up some, my last class now, and I'm moving into my master's project. And it's exciting because a lot of the stuff that we're doing at Westland are the foundational ideas that I have to like really build out my master's sort of thesis. And it's, it's exciting because I, I think, and, and I'd imagine you guys can appreciate this as well. It's one thing to be passionate about a subject, but to really be knowledgeable, to have like, to have the wisdom to understand why you do things and how that has an impact on your processes. It's, it's the thing that genuinely, I believe in my heart is the thing that's made me successful to this point mm. today. Absolutely. And that learning process along the way too is, is so great. If you're, if you're willing to be open to, uh, instruction and just, and being wrong. Cause like the curiosity piece has to come with humility. Cause if you enter something that you're curious about, but you don't have the humility piece, you're just going to get schooled and you're not going to actually learn. I think, you know, you might, there's learn. nothing more humbling than going and sitting through uh intro to biochemistry uh, <laughs> as like a imagine. 30, as a 30 something year old, when like everyone's like <laughs> fresh out of undergrad that has taken like bioorganic chem as their major. Yeah. That was a humbling experience to say the least. <laughs> oh, I can. Oh yeah. I can't even imagine. I think I took one science class in college and was like, I, just, I had this like notion like my sister is a doctor and you know, she was pre-med and there was just like, bunch of other family members and i was like I, yeah i'll i'll be i'll do pre-med i took like one class i was like i'm out i can't do pre-med <laughs> so that's that's rad that you can do that especially remote that'd be uh, i don't think i knew that 
about you. Well, it was like freshman. It was that was like right as we had first met. Yeah. 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 I. Yeah. My. My brain. I'm. I'm too all over the place to be a, a doctor. That's for sure. <laughs> how did? So I'm curious. How did? Does this? Does this have anything into keepers of the? I'm totally quake. Gonna, quake. Yeah. No. That was. So that was a. That was an award I got when I was working for Gordon and McPhail in Scotland. So oh, I am. Okay. I don't know if I still am, but at the time I was the youngest American ever to be made a keeper, which was like, I remember the day I found out I cried. Like, I am not ashamed to say I cried a lot. I was so excited. I remember I called my wife. I was crying. I called my mom and dad. I was crying. I was so touched because it was the idea of being a keeper is this. You've made this like meaningful impact on the scotch whiskey industry anywhere in the world. And the things that we were doing at Gordon McPhail and Ben Rummick were pretty pretty well known everywhere else, but not necessarily very well known in the US. So to to get that acknowledgement, you go to this beautiful ceremony at Blair Castle in Pitlockery in central Scotland. It was just, it was the wildest thing. I, I've, wow. I can tell you, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't sort of pinch myself and go in my wildest dreams, I've been more successful doing this than I ever thought I would have been. And it's not a metric of financial success. Listen, that's a, it's a great part of it. I'll be the first to admit, but it's acknowledgement from your peers Mm. is a drug. It is a thing that if it's hard not to want to chase that because when people that you respect in your trade, see what you've done as a lasting contribution, man, there is nothing like it. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, I I had no idea. I mean, I I had heard it from somebody, um, trying to remember who it was, but it was, um, yeah, that this keeper thing is like, is a really, really big deal. It what was year, cool. what was year a, was that for you? Oh God, uh, two thousand and thirteen or fourteen. Okay, it's oh, like this massive, time. impactful moment. I have no idea what yeah. year it happened. That sounds great, but <laughs> no, it was it was a it was a wild. It was just one of those wild things. Like that was just it was just such an exciting thing. And what's even sort of cool about it now is that like at Westland, all these things that we're doing and we're getting acknowledgement for, like. We just did, we just had the World Whiskey Forum at Seattle at the distillery. And like at one point, Matt and I were talking and we were just standing in the sort of the center of our cantilever room, our tasting room. This guy came up and he goes like, Westland has been an inspiration to us. And it's just like, like it just blows your mind. Here we are, we're like, we're 10 years into our journey. And to have someone come up and says like, you've inspired me to do X, Y, or Z. Like, oh my gosh, that is, that is like the greatest thing ever. Because it just shows that like, Listen, we do everything at Westland the hard way. I'll be the first to admit it. We 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 focus on raw materials, right? We tell an authentic story. We don't bullshit. Like everything that we do is genuine. It's authentic. It has a real purpose. You know, being thoughtful is not just something you get to like put on a bottle and then not do any of the work behind <laughs> yeah. it. That drives me nuts. I feel like, frankly, the liquor industry has too much of that already mm, yeah, at this point. Yeah. So for us to be able to do genuine things and to get people really excited about it and to see that they're now carrying that tradition on in their micro sort of agricultural regions, like that's, that's really incredible. Yeah. I would, I would definitely echo that over the, over the past few years, people have, have reached out and said, Hey, I want to become a B Corp or join 1% for the planet and would love to, you know, get your feedback about the process or the thing we were inspired because of the work you did. And, and that like, that feels so much better than any sort of financial success. And, and, and yeah, being the first to admit that is a great piece of, of, you know, starting a business and being employed is, you know, there's a financial aspect to it, but the reward you get by somebody a peer or somebody that wants to become like the model that you've created or the vision that you set out is like amazing. Like that is nothing that is better. True yeah. Nothing better. And then the feedback thing you said is, is so true. And I think that's something that I certainly struggle with as a leader is, is making sure that I do encourage our team and provide really great feedback and call it out specifically because it is so powerful. 
you, you get that positive reinforcement from a colleague and you're like, wow, that felt so good. And somehow I think in our individual lives, at least for me, I don't know about for you all, but it's, it's, it's hard to kind of remember that. And you see it, we, we have two kids at home and it's, you see it actively with them where you give them a compliment about something they did specifically and they light up, you know, yeah. and it's, it's uh, such a good reminder that, you know, we should be more thoughtful and intentional. At least I should be mm-hmm. on that piece because mm-hmm. it does feel so good. Mm-hmm. And the timeliness of it can be really important too, mm-hmm. you know, to acknowledge it almost like right in the moment. If, if there's an opportunity for that, I love what you said about doing it the hard way. I, yeah. I would, I would say that mere, uh, you know, a- approaches the, our work in that same way. Yeah. There's, um, there's a lot of, you can literally go to a factory and just grab something off the shelf and put your logo on it and start selling it. You know, and there's a ton of that in the bottle space, you know, with some of the, the bigger folks, Yeti and hydro taking off, you know, everyone's what trying to chase them. You know, it's like one article gets posted about how hydro did 400 million in sales. Now everybody wants to become a bottle manufacturer. Right. And so yeah. you can just take something off the shelf and do it. But I think really that hard way of like, actually doing our own design, actually doing our own tooling, actually doing our old molding. It's hard, but it's important because we believe in, in, in beauty and design and that, that piece, you know, you can't separate it. You can't just fake it. Right. You can't just like grab something off the shelf. And if you can't, I don't think it's long lasting. And when the hard times come, that's where I feel like that's when you know if somebody's actually in it for the long haul, as soon as there's a recession and we all get punched in the face, like that'll be the indicator of whether the brand is authentic or not and able to kind of fight through. Yeah. yeah, for us, it's, you know, you see whiskey and, and, and I'll use single malt very specifically in this context, but the entirety of the industry, the river of this industry is flowing in one direction. And we've decided to be that brave salmon that's just kind of going to push upstream and say like, no, this isn't, we're not going to do this. We don't believe in, in that. Like it's, ask any distillery in a moment of genuine honesty, they're going to tell you that yield is critical because yield is going to be the thing that's going to save them money and it's going to justify their price point later. And a lot of places focus on yield, frankly, over flavor. And that is, Mm. it's just so depressing because what you realize is that those producers are never going to really pay back into the system. You know, this is the reason that we have working class poor farmers is because everyone is trying to get things cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. You you made the point earlier about taxes and subsidies and things like that. I will tell you, being a single malt producer, I'm very aware of the fact that like barley has no federal level subsidies. I and mm. f- forgive me, this is a bit hyperbole, but like when you get a paycheck and you see federal taxes coming out like and you go to the store and you see, well why is bourbon half the price of 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 a single malt whiskey from america well it's because it's made with corn and corn is only a few cents a pound versus pale malt you know 30 40 cents a pound for roughly speaking equal quantities but more importantly is that like your taxes federally subsidize an enormous amount of corn an enormous amount of corn so i always tell people it's like you know you know it's it's fine to do those things listen the federal subsidies are an important part of agricultural industries, but at the same time, it's given consumers a false sense of what things actually cost. Yeah. Well, I, listen, I don't want to make cheap single malt. I want to make great single malt. I want to make single malt that's revered and respected and acknowledged as having had a positive impact on agricultural systems and the thought process of consumers around the world. Those things can't be done cheap, nor should they, because when you do things cheap, someone in the chain suffers. I, I, You've heard me say thoughtfully made a couple of times, but I I think of it as like this sort of circle, right? Being thoughtful is a circle. It starts Mm. with, it starts with the farmer and it means that the farmer needs to benefit, right? We need to, we need to make sure that we can pay them a fair wage to grow barley and to grow barley. That's not going to have a negative net impact on their soil. 
but also needs to be good for our maltster. The maltster needs to be able to take that barley and to create a marketplace for it, whether it's brewers or distillers or bakers or any of these people, but they need to be able to get people excited about it, which means that it needs to be flavorful. Now, it needs to be good for us at the distillery. It needs to be able to appropriately work to make a product that is going to be tasty, that there's going to be a demand for in the marketplace. And it needs to be good for the consumer. That means that we charge a fair price for the item and that their ability to enjoy it is not built into the price point, but built into the ethos and the value of what's provided in the bottle. If at any single point, one person suffers, you are not making thoughtfully pro thoughtful product. You're not being thoughtful in your, your product development. You're not being thoughtful as a company. Being thoughtful means that everyone wins. Whiskey does not need to be a zero-sum game. I'm not sure that there is a single business that needs to be a zero-sum game. Everyone can positively contribute and enjoy the spoils of what good whiskey can be. And, and, and frankly, it's only going to have a domino effect on more and more industries. Listen, when we treat people like they're an intrinsic part of the chain, that they should benefit from the good work that we're all doing and the good product that we're able to produce, they are going to be more engaged to support companies that do those things in other things that they consume. Mm, totally. And that to me is just, it's the reason that frankly, Westland is not just a job, but it's home for me. Yeah. Like It is why I believe in what we do. This place is as intertwined with who I am as a person as frankly, just about anything could be now. Yeah. That's yeah. Inspiring. So, so arguably someone from, from Westland's customer base is seeing that you're taking care of every link in the chain. And then they're like, wait a second, what about my cup of coffee that I'm drinking in the morning? What does that look like? And what is that, you know, producer yeah. of, or roaster of coffee? What, what are they doing to take care of their, you know, the, the links in their chain? Yeah, it seems like there's a, there's a growing movement of of quality over quantity happening, um, at least at least within definitely within like the micro Fremont neighborhood of Seattle, Washington. But even you know Seattle, um, Washington to, to a degree, you know, especially in Japan, like this this idea of less but quality. It's global. It, the idea of consuming better is a global thing. We are in this moment of, and I, I, I'm always hesitant to use the word of being Epicurean because Epicurean, I think, has an association with price that it doesn't necessarily need to have. But there is this idea of like, people are consuming better. We're more mindful of we, what we eat. We're eating hopefully less, but eating better quality of those things. Well, you know, listen, it's, I always laugh. It's the, the, this terrible example of like, it's like the hug of death, right? You like something so much and then you overconsume it and then it ruins it because it's not sustainable <laughs> at that size or that scale. You know, we're, we're trying to make sure that everything that we do at Westland is scalable with our own ambitions as a company but also to ensure that like it's scalable for what our farming partners are going to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Listen, it's to improve the conditions of a few farmers in a single region in the United States would be a significant thing to do. And we're proud of the work that we're doing, but to genuinely create an alternate system where agricultural communities can grow crops that they're excited about, can get paid a fair wage for that. And to engage with the producers that make things out of them. To me, that is far more impactful. Mm, totally. Yeah. Snaps for that. If we were on IG live right now, it'd be hearts just pumping on that one. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I absolutely, I, I absolutely agree with that, 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 uh, that statement and that concept for sure. It's, um, you know, being, being, a, being an important part of that value chain and making sure that it's equitable for all parties yeah. involved. Super, super important. Mm -hmm. All right, so I have a question. Stateside Manhattans. 
We made it on IG Live. <laughs> it's fantastic. We, we made some stateside Manhattans. I'll be honest with you. That night, I made multiple stateside yeah, yeah, that Yeah, I came home and I was like, Beck, I made the best drink ever because I wasn't really a, a, a Manhattan drinker, but uh, you enlightened me to the way of the stateside uh, Manhattan. And then the vermouth in the fridge trick. That's yeah. the, that is the pro play. The pro play is keeping your vermouth in the fridge. It keeps fresh and it totally makes the drink better. We yeah. have a bottle though right now in the fridge. It, it like out of the corner of my eye, it kind of looks like rosé or something. And so I'll pull, I'll be like, oh, sweet, rosé. And then I pull it out and I'm like, nope, that's removed. Put I mean, you could try drinking it. It might be a little rough. <laughs> what's, uh, your, what's your question? So, so, I'm, so, I've, um, so I've been doing research on state, stateside Manhattans. And then I was like, well, where did the Manhattan come from? And I was starting to do some research. But I was like, what did, and I, and I think we talked about this on the show, but where did the concept of like, did, did Westland start the stateside Manhattan? Cause y'all hit like the number one link on Google. So I was like, well, yeah, SEO favors the founder. So did you? Yeah. So we, we, the, the stateside Manhattan as it is specifically is a Westland sort of thing. Got it. Right. Okay. So it was developed by a woman by the name of Madeline K who's part of collective 1806, which is our sort of bar influencing group that is working with Remy Quantro. She's fantastic. She's based out of Chicago. And we were, I remember like jokingly kind of saying like, God, we need like a signature drink. We need something easy that people can make. Like I'm not a, I'm not a 15 ingredient cocktail guy. Right. Like yeah. I don't have that attention span. Like to be honest <laughs> with you, I just like whiskey neat for the most part, but we, you know, Madeline kind of said, and she was like, well, you've got to do something that's like a classic cocktail. And she goes, you know, a Manhattan is typically made with bourbon or rye. It's a pretty, it's a two, one, two cocktail, right? Two ounces of spirit, an ounce of sweet vermouth, and then two dashes of bitters and like a cherry. It's, it's not a terribly difficult drink to make. You can make it on the rocks. You can make it up. It doesn't really matter, but it's typically not made with single malt when it's made with single malt and specifically Scotch whiskey, they call it a Rob Roy. But uh, we said, we, you know, the idea was, is like, okay, like well, how do we make it? <laughs> how do we make it a <laughs> we said to ourselves like well how do we make this a thing that's gonna like you know be easy to say it's memorable you can say it in a bar pretty easily and we were like stateside rob roy doesn't really tongue <laughs> terribly that, well yeah, yeah. even though technic even though technically speaking it's probably a more apt description of what it actually is but we were like oh stateside manhattan actually sounds kind of cool and it's it's interesting because the we get this really interesting cherries, orange peel, lemon zest thing. It's the result of our fermentation. We use this Belgian Saison yeast, a high temperature, and it creates this really nice estery, fruity, floral thing. Yeah. And when you combine that with sweet vermouth, you get this beautiful, like chocolate covered cherry thing coming through. And that cocktail is just, it's so easy to drink. It's, it's the perfect cocktail for, you've got a group of friends over, half of them don't drink whiskey and you're like well i only have a bottle of whiskey we're having whiskey cocktails yeah. <laughs> it's not super boozy it's easy to drink it's i don't know i i love it we show it and share it with our friends all the time it's super easy to kind of make them up and you can make a batch of manhattans in like six minutes yeah it's really easy that's what i think i like too we we um we've been making a cocktail during quarantine that's um oh, what is the original name for it it's like the, the desert, desert derby. the desert derby and it's like two ounces of grapefruit or two ounces of whiskey ounce of grapefruit half an ounce of lime so it's like grapefruit lime juice and then a couple dashes sounds of like a greyhound with, almost with yeah. rosemary you could, yeah you could throw in like rosemary or sage or something to kind of spice it up a little bit and it's which listen it's a great cocktail um i love making it however 
squeezing juice, I'm kind of like, oh, this is just uh, this is too much work, <laughs> which makes me sound super lazy. But <laughs> the stateside Manhattan is so easy. So thank you for enlightening me on the stateside Manhattan. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that's cool. It's that has become like the cocktail that we've really built a nice little base of business off of here in the US. Like, listen, at the end of the day, a majority of single malt whiskey is consumed in home, right? It's, you know, single malt's a little more expensive in a bar. It's a more expensive cocktail. But we've we've seen a huge amount of like home bartending has exploded in the time of COVID, right? Mm. People want that experience. I mean, virtual happy hours are not just like a joke. They're real things now. People totally. are engaged with it. They're sharing different cocktail ideas, which I think is super cool. But um, it's interesting because that's really a thing here. But like when we go overseas, like in Japan, we, I mean, obviously the culture of the highball is like king there. And we've seen people take our three core inch whiskey. So we make three sort of base whiskeys, American oak, sherry wood, and a peated expression. And they make different highballs with those. And to, you know, with soda water, you, that effervescence just gives you such a different flavor. And it's so easy. So it, like, listen, if you hear something like the States of Manhattan, you go, oh, that's too many ingredients. I'm not sure I want to like do that. Honestly, a highball is like whiskey plus ice, Collins glass, and like soda water. Yeah. You, you literally, everyone can make that. Let's yeah, you be can honest. make that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody can enjoy that one. Also, what time is it? Like, is it too early to start? It's, it is <laughs> effectively never too early as long as you do it out of a coffee cup. Yeah. Hey, love <laughs> it. Oh, I love that. Oh, so too good. Too good. Bri, did you want to touch on the new color launch for Mir? Yeah. And how this podcast is related to that? Well, yeah. I mean, we kind of touched base on it because it's Gadget Valley. So Basil is, uh, I always say it wrong. Am I saying it right? Basil. 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 Yeah. Uh, it's a gray, it's kind of that cloudy fog layer that you see in the Skagit Valley. Um, and we already talked about Skagit Valley. We did. I mean, we did, we but did. I, I just love the Skagit Valley. If you, if, if you haven't been to the Skagit Valley, you really got to eventually get on a plane someday, who knows when, um, and come up to the Northwest and see the Skagit Valley. But the, um, the barley is, it's the barley, right? The barley that you all use, some of it, it comes from the Skagit Valley. Is that correct? It does. Now, we've yeah. not, just to be clear, we've not released any of that whiskey yet. Actually, we have a super exciting release for, it was going to be mid-summer. Obviously, we've decided to push it back a bit. But mid-September at the distillery, we're going to have a huge launch for a new whiskey that we're doing that celebrates the role of agriculture in whiskey. And I can tell you, it's going to go quickly. We're, people yes. come down to the distillery, come celebrate with us. We are super excited to have you down there. And frankly, just get people back into the to the distillery yeah. and have our friends back in. It'll be exciting. But it's... um. I can't say a ton, unfortunately, but I will I, hyperbole aside, genuinely, it's going to be one of the most impactful single malts that's been produced since our release of Gariana, our use of native oak. So this is the kind of thing that's going to allow us to celebrate agriculture in a way that you're actually going to be able to see it in the bottle. Oh. You know, it's, it's, again, it's the work that we do with Bread Lab. You know, we, we fully sponsor and cover a PhD student up there because we yes. believe so strongly in the work that's being done by Steve Jones and his team. It's, you need to show people like how to apply those things. And this, mm. this whiskey that we're going to release is going to blow people away. Yeah, oh. I, we've I been tasting wait. lab samples. It is, it is incredible. And it is the culmination of years. Like I, it's important to, to kind of clarify because I, I feel like I don't do a great job at explaining this, but like we have been working with Skagit Valley for years. Like this wasn't like a year ago. We were like, you know, it'd be great if we could make a whiskey <laughs> with X, Y, or Z. Like it's not that like, to me, that's the worst version of, of people taking advantage of a trend, right? I want us to be doing things that are genuine, that that speak to who we are as a as a team and are sort of central to our culture. So this work with Skagit Valley started, you know, seven, eight years ago now with the idea being it's like, 
there's something really special going on up here. How do we become a bigger part of it? And not only do we, how do we like benefit from it, but how do we engage it and get more people up here and get more people excited? I mean, you look at like what the port of Skagit looks like now versus what it did 10 years ago and it's night and day. Yeah. And it just goes to show that Steve Jones and, and the team at Bread Lab and the team at Skagit Valley Malting and other great businesses up there. I mean, I think of like um, Garden Path Fermentation. There is chucking up brewing. There's so many mm. incredible things going on up there. People that are committed to real agricultural change and are putting out products that are just unbelievably interesting and tasty. It's one thing, listen, it's people say it all the time, like we're innovating, but if you're innovating just for the sake of it and the product quality is not behind it, there's no real soul to the product, then what are you actually doing? Yeah, what are you actually doing? Yeah, yeah, because it has to be commercially viable. It has to be desirable. People, it has to be a great product. I mean, that's, that's I love what you're saying there because it touches on something that we're very passionate about at Mir where, you know, we are a social enterprise and we're, we're, we're very excited and proud of the work that we do with our nonprofit partners. But for me, I've always hammered that product has to be the best because if we solely rely on our model of generosity to sell a product, we failed because we should be so committed to building the best possible product for our consumers that then when you add in the generosity piece, it's an overwhelmingly slam dunk that they're going to buy our product. But also how, how horrible is it that we would sell a product that's subpar and not good on the back of a mission of doing social good, you know? And so I think for us, it's, you know, people want to put us into this, like, we are a social enterprise, but we are first and foremost a product-based company and we always push for innovation, but to make the product actually better, to make the consumer's experience better, as opposed to just like, here's the thing that's better because it's just better. You know, it's actually improving the person's life. I think it's super, super important. Well, and you're doing the envelope pushing through the product. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway. it's, it's about creating a sea change. It's about creating mm -hmm. a real impact and a lasting impact. Yeah. You know, I look at the, the work that we're doing up there with Bread Lab these things are gonna have a compounding impact on that that agricultural industry up there. And hopefully, my hope is that one day someone's gonna see what's going on there and say, why couldn't we have a bread lab in central Kansas? Why couldn't we have a bread lab in southern Wisconsin? Why couldn't we have a bread lab in northern Virginia? Because we need to get back to this idea of microagriculture. We mm. need to get people thinking, I mean, listen, there was a time in this country where, you know, barley mills were all over the United States. And now we're down to just a handful of them because we've decided that, you know, well, this is what this thing should look like. And, and we've lost sight of the fact that like, we're no longer farming as much of this country because people just aren't excited about it. They're not engaged with it because it just doesn't feel like something where there's a lot of innovation and exciting things happening. But my hope is that Skagit Valley and the work that Bread Lab is doing is going to act as a microcosm and frankly have this ripple effect in agricultural micro communities all over the United States. Totally. Preach. Let's nice. go. I love it. Yeah, the Bread Lab um, is incredible. Such a great group. Okay, well, I can't wait for this new whiskey. I'm sure if it has a name, you can't tell us what it is. But does it have a name yet? Or are you guys still it, brainstorming? It does have a name. Okay. okay. Nice. nice. Oh. So mid-September mid is actually, I'm not 100% sure if I'm allowed to, to say the name or not, to be totally Well, don't say it. Don't you. say it. We don't want you to get in trouble. Okay. <laughs> I mean... There's only a couple of people that can actually yell at me there, so I feel like we're a decent. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. But no, it's it's. Listen, I, I not to not to spoil it or anything, and I won't say the actual name, but it's it's really built around this idea of cultivating and and, and growth and and experience. And I think I think what people are gonna taste in the bottle is years of hard work and an appreciation for like honest to god good agricultural practices. 
Oh, and this is this inspiring. is just the beginning. I mean, this is literally it's the snowflake on the tip of the iceberg. It's not even the full tip of the iceberg at this point. We have things coming out over the next five years when I think about our product lineup that are going to, I, I again, bias party. I'm the first to admit they're going to revolutionize <laughs> the way people think about whiskey. Oh, it's incredible. I love that. I love. I get, I've got goosebumps. It's going to be hard to wait. It's got to be hard well, not, for you guys. I mean, wait. honestly, it's funny. I keep thinking to myself, I was like, oh, it's like seven or eight months till September. It's like it's three tomorrow. or four. Yeah, we're it's there. pretty close. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're right there. Yeah, we were, we yeah. were rebudgeting the second half of the year just because of COVID and just you know trying to make sense of 2020 from a budgeting perspective. And it was funny because we're like, oh, we got to rebudget. And then we were talking about, you know, headcount and blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, and then in three months, we're going to be budgeting 2021. Like, <laughs> whoa, okay, this year is flow. I mean, it's it feels, it's been like, Long and also very short all at the same time. I yeah. just, I, yesterday I spent all day working on financial implications till 28, 29. And it's like, oh, wow. Like this actually isn't this far from now at this point. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. But it's yeah. exciting. It's, listen, I, you know, we're not in this for the year to year. We're in this for the decade to decade. We want to be a company that's around, you know, generations from now. Absolutely. I would, I would echo that as well. Well, we, uh, we ask all of our guests uh, similar questions at the end, and I cannot wait for your answers because I feel like they're going to be fantastic. So no pressure, Chris. Um, yeah, but, right. But, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just a few questions that we love to ask, and you can go, in, you can go as deep as you want um, and don't think too hard about them either. Okay. Uh, That's never been a problem for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is, is it easier to go alone or together? It's easier to go alone. It's always easier to go alone. I, it, you know, whether or not you believe that you can depend on yourself exclusively, being collaborative is a lot more challenging than I think people actually realize. Listen, you know, I believe that most ships need a good captain. I, I think that's the way of the world. But a captain is only as valuable as the quality of the crew. So, you know, it's it's tough to put together a good team that works together, that, that frankly respects each other mm. and is collaborative and wants to do good work is... In the long run, it might you might get a lot more done, but if you just need to do something quickly, it's I would argue it's always easier to do it alone. Yeah. What is one belief you hold that will never change? Oh, one belief that I hold that'll never change. Oh man. I certainly being, you know, thoughtfully made is something that at this point is is it's hard to say that there's anything that's had a greater impact on me in the way that I think. And frankly, my consumption habits as a consumer, you know, being thoughtful and, and frankly, supporting places that I know are thoughtful has really changed the way that I look at just about everything. Mm -hmm. mm. That's a really great lens through kind of which to look. Yeah. Uh, all right. Don't, this is a fill in the blank. Don't sacrifice blank for blank. Don't sacrifice quality for cost. Ooh. don't i hate i listen what is it oh god and forgive me i'm gonna butcher this and i'm just preparing you now but like <laughs> there was one of those great and god it probably started on facebook which is going to annoy me but like there was one of those great things where it was uh the 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 bitterness of or the 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 bitterness of poor quality lingers far longer than the sweetness of a sharp price and boy oh boy Ooh. is that not the truth of the matter like i would i will fight to the death of me. I will literally exhaust myself to justify our price points and to justify what we do because I know that it's genuine and I know that it's authentic. 
to cheapen those things by just slapping a price on it for some commercial sort of nonsense, it, it's the worst way to do things. Listen, if you if you respect your partners and you respect yourself, you will find a way to sell good product. Amen. A lot of times, I think, frankly, it's because companies don't have a sense of who their actual consumer is. Mm. Yeah, know who know who consumes your product. Know who engages with you. You know, it's this is one thing that's been really great for us at, at Westland is that we we have a sense of who we are and we have a sense of who our consumers are. And we're okay with the fact, listen, I don't want to be the cheapest single mall. I certainly have no desire to just do what everyone else does and focus on yield. I want to make flavorful whiskey that respects raw materials, that celebrates a real sense of place and gets people excited about visiting and being a part of the Northwest. To me, like that's the mission. That's the, that, that's the mountain. It's, I, I said this to you. So forgive me if it's your people have heard it already when we talked on IG, but Man, it's like you talk to people all the time that are getting into creation. And we'll say creation of like a beverage. Yeah. And they're like, oh, in a few years, we're going to do this thing. We're going to be making this great product. It's like, stop. That's bullshit. Like, it's just nonsense. Your job is to make the best thing every single day. Like, if you're you're thinking that like the mountaintop is you're going to get to climb it like three years from now, that's not the way it works. Like, you need to start by making great product because, frankly, there is enough good stuff out there already. I don't need more good whiskey. I need more great whiskey. Mm. Yeah, we don't need more good businesses. We need more great businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that translates yeah. to more than just whiskey for sure. Um, okay, now I'm picturing you as a little boy standing in front of the pond. Uh, but uh, <laughs> name one activity you turn to when you're in need of a reset. In need of a reset. I emotionally it's going for a walk with my wife. My wife is the centering of my universe. Like when I am stressed out or focused on something and I need a reset, my wife is always there for me. I, I, you know, I, we were talking about this earlier, but like I have not been home a lot for a decade. Um, it's been really interesting to, to be an active partner with my wife and to like have dinners together and to like sit at the table and to look at each other and ask each other about our days. It's listen, we did that stuff all the time when we were like on the phone and I'd be like, you know, 17 hours ahead of her or something, but it's not the same. And when I need a, when I need an emotional reset, when I need a physical reset, I go out and I fish, but an emotional resets my wife and, you know, physical resets going out to the river. Yeah. Nice. I was, I, they make fun of me at work for this all the time, but I will say it cause I know they're going to want to hear it, but the Farmington river provides, that's what I tell people <laughs> all the time. It, it provides like this thing that I need. Oh, that's great. That's great that you know that about yourself too. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last one. This is a quote we're sort of adopting from John Muir. Um, he penned the mountains are calling and I must go. So another fill in the blank for you. So blank is calling and I must go. Oh man. It's not going to sound right, but it's, 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 it's an agricultural ethos. It's this country is yearning for something new for, for real change in agriculture. We're yearning for a system where our farmers aren't left behind and not able to enjoy the spoils of the products that they produce. That is the thing that is the, it is the thing that wakes me up in the morning. And it's the thing that I think about when I go to bed. Yes, there is a million things that I do. You know, there's talking to consumers, there's spreadsheets, there's all the minutia of, of being in a business, but it's the thing that like, when I go up to Skagit Valley or when I talk to our maltsters or I'm talking to people that are excited about this thing, I can't help but to think to myself, like, 
this is your one chance to make them an evangelist for this idea. You have, I'm a firm believer that like you have 30 seconds in just about any sort of engagement with people to make it impactful. And if you blow those 30 seconds, it is, you're never going to get them back. So for me, it's this idea of like, every time I talk to someone and this is, I will tell you, it is emotionally draining. It's physically draining. I find myself, I sleep really well most nights. (laughs) Um, I just, I put my everything into everything that I do. I don't, I just, I don't take easy days because I know that someone else out there is working a field that's growing barley for us or a maltster is working hard and thinking about the way that they can make better barley or Steve and his team at the bread lab are doing things that are, you know, building out a better system. I know that they're not going to be the mouthpiece for what they do, right? They're not the the commercial thing that like you can see and physically hold and pick up. So I, I relish frankly in my role in that, that sort of ecosystem and saying like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be the guy that's going to bring people to Skagit. I'm going to bring money into this Valley and I'm going to get people to, to recognize that like we need real agricultural change because our farmers not only deserve it, but our land needs it. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's incredible. Well said. I think you're like right where you should be, right where you need to be for yeah, I don't, all of the I, ways that you're gifted and what you're passionate about and what you're learning. Like, it just seems like you're in exactly the right place. It's We've talked about this, my wife and I, and she's like, she's like, well, what do you want to do after whiskey? And I was like, what do you mean after whiskey? Like, <laughs> this is like, not for anything, but like, I'm you know, 36 years old. I've been doing this for 15 odd years at this point. Like, I'm in, like, I'm a hundred percent in. I... I like being fully committed to things. It, it makes it feel better. It makes it more engaging. Like I, when people are like, oh, I like, I like my job. I'm like, oh man, like, I, I don't know if I could do something and like my job. Like <laughs> I don't like anything. I either love things or can't stand them. Like I'm, there's very little gray in my universe. <laughs> what about, okay. Black licorice. I'm sorry. Black licorice, love or hate. Oh, I'm definitely a more of a love guy for sure. Oh, for, really? I can't stand it. Black licorice. I feel like that's a polarizing thing, right? It, it, well, the fl- oh, wait, the- I'm sorry. Did you, did you say, I'm just thinking I'm hearing it now. Did you say black licorice? I said black licorice. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said, <laughs> are you more of a love or hate person? I was like, well, I guess I'd rather love than oh. hate, but <laughs> no, yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, I hate, I absolutely yeah, hate see? with a passion black licorice, yeah, but yeah. I also don't like the flavor of, um, of like anise. I don't like that flavor in particular. It's funny. We have a question that we ask new employees at Westland when we do our interview process, which we have, we have a quite the interviewing process. It's like your one major interview and then a team interview to make sure like everyone's going to get along. And it's usually over like, you know, maybe a beer, some pizza, just something to kind of be social with, but we each get to ask our own question. And one of the questions that someone always (laughs) asks is what are your feelings on cilantro? Because Westland is highly (laughs) divided on our feelings on cilantro. Yes, totally. Cilantro is the one that tastes like soap or not, right? It either tastes like soap or not. Are you a soap person? You think it tastes like soap? No, I do not. I actually really like cilantro. I do too. Matt Hoffman is a hater of cilantro in the the largest way possible. And it drives me nuts because cilantro to me can be added to just about everything. Yeah. 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 yeah totally. Yeah. I don't, I don't have, I don't have issues with the cilantro. You know, I'm not a connoisseur of licorice, so I, I need to refresh myself in. I mean, red to me is just like pure sugar. So black want, licorice is more of a Don't bring it home. Flavor. I don't want to okay. see it. I want, I want big licorice to like change my mind. Like show yeah. me why. <laughs> I don't know if there is a big licorice, there but probably, if there is like, show me why I should care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. Oh, that's funny. We got to find a licorice, Can I tell you, a licorice yeah. guest. For yes. Our podcast. I have been, I have, so last time we talked, I told you I was getting more into coffee. 
I am deep down the rabbit hole. Oh yes, what do you what do you oh, want yeah. right now? What it you... is we're all over. The, so I bought a I bought a burr grinder. Yes, I you know that Great was, step. I was we we talked about that. That was like the step. Now I'm like looking at like water temperatures. Oh yeah, I literally just signed up for I don't know if you guys work with them, but Counterculture. Oh yeah, I think they're yep. out of the Carolinas, yep. Yep. and I've been getting their single origin subscriptions. Oh God, it's this is like I need another hobby. Like I need a hole in the head. But oh yeah. my gosh, like. I, for years, and we talked about this, but Becca, for years, I was a cream and sugar guy in coffee. Like the lighter, the sweeter, the better. And I will tell you, I've been drinking black coffee since January now. I, I started intermittent fasting, wanted to get more healthy, realized that a bunch of cream and sugar and coffee probably wasn't helping that goal. <laughs> and man, when you don't have a bunch of junk in your coffee, when you can actually like grind the beans consistently, have the temperature right and measure things out appropriately coffee is fantastic so good and it's so like there's so many varieties i mean that's yeah. what i think is amazing about like you know when people think about whiskey and coffee and and wine i think people instantly think that wine has all these different flavors and it does right but same with coffee and same with whiskey you have you know with coffee you have these different regions and you have different seasonalities and well there's different methods and there's of different washing. roasts and washing and natural and wa i mean it's it's fantastic and when you get in that rabbit hole it's yeah. it's really really fun because you can get so many different fruits you can get stuff that's more acidic and stuff that's more bitter and it's uh it's such a are you it. doing pour over or how are you brewing it? I've been doing um I've been doing French press because nice. it's like kind of exactly like two and a half cups of coffee, which is sort of perfect for Susan and I in the morning. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. That's so rad. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I still it. haven't gotten to like the midday coffee, so I'm pretty caffeine sensitive, so I have to be mindful. Like if I have coffee afternoon, you think I'm hyper now. It's like oh, <laughs> it's too much. It's way too much. Ooh, I want to I want to see three cup three cup Chris. That'd be uh, oh man. Yeah. I'll tell you what. We'll go bird hunting <laughs> sometime. Cups. Let's we'll do dance. it. <laughs> Let's do it. You're on. You're on. Uh, there's there's two row barley and there's a yeah. th three cup Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, man. so many Yikes. I, Even I don't want to meet that person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too good. Well, Chris, your your passion is infectious. Uh, it's I, I feel like I always learn something from you uh, every time we talk. So thanks for taking time. You're a total inspiration. Totally. And we'll send you Basil Mirror product upon arrival. We will coming July. It is coming July. And in yeah. mid-September, we will have a fantastic introduction to the unnamed whiskey uh, that we're so excited to taste. And hopefully we're all able to be there in person. The culmination and closer, of closer to the work. holiday season, we're going to have exactly. a cool little thing with Mir. That's it sounds right. like that we're just finishing up right now, yes, which is yes, going to be super yes. awesome. It's so, going to be good. Yeah, so, so much some, good some stuff Some really to come. cool stuff coming up. Yeah, but, so get uh, excited you, for the fall and the winter. Yeah. You guys are great. Uh, listen, I, I said it earlier, uh, you know, meerkat for life. Love what you guys are doing. Honestly, I, I believe really strongly in the idea of like one fisherman always sees another from the shore. So I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you guys get excited by what we do because we certainly get excited by what you guys do. Awesome. And that's why I think Rad. we're such great partners. So yeah, thanks thanks again for taking time. And uh, it's always good to catch up with you. Uh, you guys are the best. Thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you on the next episode.